the lie the poetry tells is constant as the truth itself without the lies and the false beliefs where State of the Theory podcast. I'm Hannah. And I'm an India. And we are your theory doctors. Hello. Welcome back. Um, we've got a special guest today. We do. We, this is a, a joint mashup episode. And we've got Sam Haddo from Stage Blether. Hiya. How are you doing, Sam? Really good. This is the second time we're running the hello section. And I still find it hilarious when you do your hello bit. Which I was quite pleased about. <laughs> Yes, I, I, I feel feel like I'm a puppy being objectified here. Never mind. Um, so we're going to do an episode on war and uh, the commemoration of war. And this was inspired uh, partly by the recent commemorations of the Battle of the Somme. And uh, Sam will tell us a bit about what form the commemorations took. Uh, yeah, right. So there was a an un advertised performance, public performance called We're Here Because We're Here, which was directed by or conceived by Jeremy Della, who's a performance artist, and Rufus Norris, who is uh, the artistic director of the Royal National Theatre in London. Um, They got together 1,600 volunteers, young men, and dressed them up like First World War soldiers, sent them out to cities all around the UK, and these people would simply, their instructions were to go and be in a city centre somewhere. Occasionally they would group together, sometimes they would march through streets. They didn't talk, but they had each of them had a card, or a set of cards, upon which was written the name and, um, I believe, date of birth uh, of the soldier that they were representing. At various points throughout the day, these people would group together and they would sing, and they would sing the song We're Here Because We're Here, which is set to the tune of Aud Aud Lang Syne, which was conceived by soldiers who were in the trenches during the First World War, and is this kind of gloriously ironic song about we're here because we're here because they had absolutely no, you know, no idea why they were there, simply knew that they were fighting and dying. Um, it was fairly well received in the media. It's one of those things, I, I think uh, we're going to talk more about the, the performance and why it happened and what exactly was going on. Generally speaking, I think that this seemed like a very appropriate way of marking the centenary of the song in the sense that what they were trying to do was produce ghostly visions. Della said that he wanted to try and copy that the reports that people had uh, made of seeing loved ones, brothers and sons and fathers who died in the First World War, immediately afterwards they would see their ghosts, they would see visions of the ghosts wearing these uh, the army uniforms. And Della wanted to produce that kind of uncanny experience in the viewing public and for the most part I think succeeded. Uh, but the BBC did a series of Vox Pops and you did get people saying, oh it's really good I w- I'm trying to collect all of the cards from all of the soldiers treating them as if they were kind of glorified top trumps, which did annoy me quite a lot. But anyway, so that, that was the performance, that was the production. It's... um. Norris, uh, I think, was trying to fulfil part of the Royal National Theatre's remit, which is to service the cultural needs of the UK, a remit at which I think the Royal National Theatre often fails because most of its cultural output is concentrated in London. So this was something, actually, that was you know, a national uh, event. I didn't see any of it because it didn't come to Edinburgh, which was really annoying, but it did go to Glasgow. Yeah, there you go. Sorry. That was quite a lot of splurging. That's, that's good. Um, what did you find particularly interesting about... Uh, what have I been interesting about? There, yeah, well, I found the ambiguity, the deliberate ambiguity of the performance, interesting in the sense that 
it was something that did not offer any kind of explanation, did not demand participation from spectators, but instead encouraged spectators to respond in whatever way they saw fit. If they wanted to go and talk to the soldiers, they could. If they didn't, they didn't have to. Um, the only time it really encroached upon spectators was when they gathered together and they sang this song. Mm. And the final verse of the song, they would scream it. And it's, uh, you, again, go, go on YouTube and look at the, the BBC Vox Pops and you can see um, footage of them screaming these the final verse of this song in train stations, particularly, they, they focus a lot on train stations, which are getting, is also quite interesting given that train stations is a place of transient place people leave. Um, it's also places where soldiers would have left. Exactly, yeah. 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 Um, I have a particular problem with uh, the more common remembrance events, like the two-minute silence, the wearing poppies that we all get to, because I tend to think that they encourage people not to think, not to uh, investigate, not to interact with the event itself. They simply say, you've got to stand there and be silent for two minutes, and this is somehow a, uh, an appropriate response to the death of millions of people 100 years ago. This seemed like a more thoughtful and a more provocative way of observing the anniversary of the song. Does that make sense? Yes. And I agree. I, th I think um, even more um, than sort of telling people how to how to behave in terms of a, a commemoration, like the um, two minutes of silence. And it, in a sense, it also provides a blueprint for how one should feel. So you don't need to generate any sort of independent emotional response to whether it's historical evidence or cultural representation or um, artistic production or, you know, just memories that you might have of conflict or war or trauma, you're told exactly how you should feel. Right. And so you you just join in and you share those same emotions with everyone else. Right. And for those of us, you know, who have decided to spend our lives examining things like emotions critically, it can be kind of an isolating experience. Yeah, exactly. I remember, I've got this very clear sort of vision when I was 15, um, being at school, and on the 11th of November we were all taken out onto the playground and we were put into lines, in class lines, and uh, the headmaster got to the front of the lines, and one of my friends, who was a trumpet player, stood next to him, and I remember the vision of the two of them looking sort of full of pride, bursting with their own importance, and my friend then played the last post, yeah. which is something that's traditionally played on the 11th of November to observe the death of soldiers. At the time, I remember thinking, what on earth has this got to do with the death of soldiers in combat? And it didn't matter that yeah. it had nothing to do with the death of soldiers. All that mattered was that we shot up for the yeah. period of time that this, this song was being played. And then we could all share in this feeling of somehow having done something positive. Yeah. And I hated it in a very kind of teenage anger way. But it is an anger that stayed with me whenever these kind of, yeah, when, like, as you're saying, whenever these kind of events happen where you don't personally engage with, them, with what's going on, yeah. you just share in a collective sense of participation that doesn't engage with history and doesn't encourage any kind of critical thinking or evaluation yeah sorry slightly angry outburst um it's something it, it occurs to me that something is inter something interesting is happening with the 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 use of the body in the performance you know the, the fact that these bodies are being sent into these particular spaces um mm. and it sort of it reminds me a little bit of of um French philosopher Jacques Derrida's idea of ontology, um, where the ghost is something that that exists because 
the ghost is out of space. The ghost that the the in order the right in order for mourning to happen, the body needs to be occupying a certain space, and everybody needs to know what space that body is occupying. Um, and of course, by its very nature, m many if not most of the soldiers who were killed in the First World War do not occupy a known space. Mm. Um, and therefore they are almost always spectral, as it were. They, they, mm -hmm. they, their uh, existence as, as, a, as a dead body is always questioned, always challenged. Yeah. I mean, the, the, you think kind of, in terms of the, the British response to the First World War, uh, often it's access, um, representations are accessed through poetry. Mm -hmm. And you've got the two, Rupert Brooks, um, If I Should Die, I Think of yeah. Me, there's some corner of a mm -hmm. farm field, and Thomas Hardy's uh, Drummer Hodge, which is about an earlier conflict, mm -hmm. but did end up becoming very emblematic mm -hmm. of the First World War, in which both cases, there's this sense of retaining some form of corporeality, even if that is simply that my body has gone into a field somewhere in Flanders. Yes. That yes. you therefore know where I am, and therefore I can be mourned. Whereas without that, yeah. It, yeah, it's impossible to, to mourn or to grieve. And also in, in that act of um, mourning, in that act of grieving, it, there is a sort of a transfer of sovereignty as well. It's somehow, you know, that becomes England. You know that that place abroad becomes England. Um, mm. T. S. Eliot did a, a poem along very similar lines about soldiers in India fighting, Indian soldiers fighting the First World War, sort of somehow twinning a village in the middle in the Midlands and a village in the Punjab becomes part of the same world because you have similar sacrifices from from both countries, which you know, given the unequal imperial dynamics, is is yeah. ludicrous. But um, there does seem to be something about something very, somehow very literal about the way the nation reclaims the, the body of this lost soldier mm. and makes it part of itself. Mm. I was at a conference in King's College London uh, last year, it was called Aftermath, Cultural Legacies of the First World War, and there's a guy called Bill Bolthrop, who's an American historian, who was talking about American um, dead bodies in the First World War and how, uh, is it Wilson who was prominent, uh, who was president then? Was it Woodrow Wilson who was president during the First World War? Yes. yes. Um, I think it was the, so the, the president. He's the one who who decided to enter the war. Mm. Right. Mr. Wilson's war is mm. the kind of um, he's the one that took the United States ah. into the First World War. Is that why Charlie Wilson's war is called Charlie Wilson's war? Yes. I never got that. Yes. Um, brilliant. Um, so he offered families of uh, whose uh, had lost people in the. the Trenches and in, in the you know in France and in Belgium, the opportunity of repatriating the corpses or having or they could get some money and the corpses could be buried in in um, France and Belgium and, and both the Professor Bolthrop's research involved going round American battlefields in Belgium and in France and observing the way in which the bodies had been well they not the graves had been presented and they, there were. Um, these huge churches that had been built, mm. really impressive-looking sculpts that nobody went to, mm. because um, this was not really part of the cultural, as far as he was concerned, the cultural narrative, the cultural memories in the United States. But they had been built in order to assert that there was this part of France or this part of Belgium that was American, yes. because this is where the bodies mm. had been buried. Um, they also had uh, it was he he looked a lot into the fact that there were crucifixes and stars of David, but there were no other. Um, but those were the only two options that you had in terms of um, headstones. You no other religious affiliations, of which apparently there were quite a few, had the opportunity of having symbols from their own religions used to mark the body, the graves. 
Which is an interesting contrast to the way, I mean, you've spoken about this in a Sage Brother episode in the past about the performance of the body being repatriated as it happens today, um, which is very, in some ways, very different from that model, right? Mm. Yeah, well, Hannah was talking about this when we were having a conversation before and about the way in which bodies are repatriated in the United States at the moment and the way in which they're concealed rather than, or the repatriation is concealed and happens at night. Yeah, where it's it's um, it's a it's very small. There, it's it's not public. Um, part of this is the kind of the volume, in a sense, the number of bodies that come back. Um, you know, the the U.S. military has a number of conflicts. You know, that it's engaged in at the moment, and um, there are quite a few soldiers that have come back. I think, um, but. I mean, you're talking about about graves and about um, places where bodies have been buried, and that to me seems a little bit different from actual remains of soldiers who are being repatriated. Um, in a sense, it seems like there's been a shift in Europe away from the site of death as being the the site of burial, and it's becoming, you know, sacred or um, um, meaningful in a new way, as opposed to the body itself, which is being repatriated. And I think in the United States there is, I talk about this all the time, um, the, the American kind of myth of itself relies very much on a belief in the United States' vulnerability. Um, and, you know, We've talked on our podcast a lot about this as being one of the kind of key drivers of Trump's campaign is the idea that the United States is weak and fragile and vulnerable. Um, and in a sense, the, the myth and the narrative that's arisen around the U.S. military and around American troops in particular is that they are at once infallible, they are superhuman, and they are exceptional. In a sense, they are superheroes. But at the same time, when they die, when they're killed in combat, or when they're horrifically maimed and injured, it belies this sort of myth of the military as being all-powerful. And then it feeds into this myth of the military as being weak and vulnerable. And the U.S. hasn't really managed to bridge that gap. So there's this constant tension between is the American military the greatest in the world and is the United States always at risk of unraveling? Yeah. You know, the, it, yeah. what could topple the United States are, you know, children of Mexican immigrants who want to go to school and access health care in their communities. You know, the, mm. but at the same time, the U.S. military is this all-powerful all-seeing organization with these, you know, super heroic bodies that have been, you know, trained and perfected, you know, for the ultimate sacrifice. But then once that ultimate sacrifice has been made, it shows then that actually the military isn't perfect or super heroic because a soldier has died. And it leads to a sort of private, in a sense, privatized return or repatriation of the remains because we don't know how to handle the remains. Hmm. We don't know what what to do with the body because it is at once a display of American might and American weakness. Right. 
And I mean, so when the when the body is American body of the the dead soldiers repatriated, are they? Because there's the there's the Arlington Cemetery, right? Is that where they're buried, or are they buried in? Um, there's lots of military cemeteries. Or cemeteries, cemeteries. That's a terrible slip of the tongue. Freudian slip. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of military cemeteries around the United States. So I mean, we have it. There's a huge one near my house, mm. um, where lots and lots mm. of soldiers are buried. Mm. So it, in a sense, you. I mean, it really depends. Some mm. families get to choose, mm. you know, to have. A soldier buried closer to them. Um, so th there's plenty of soldiers in Arlington, mm. um, but there's also soldiers that have been buried mm. all around the world. Mm. And also, or, and if you have, um, if you're a veteran, mm. and if you die, you know, at whatever point in your life you die, but if you served in the U.S. Mm. military, there are military cemeteries all around mm. where you can be buried mm. with with your spouse or your children and and. Um, that are specifically cemeteries for members of the military. Um, but sites like Arlington are very, very powerful. And of course, yeah. every Memorial Day, yeah. there's an image of the president at Arlington. Yeah. Mm. Which, I mean, Wooten Bassett is the British equivalent, uh, I guess. Mm. Um, yeah, although as we were saying beforehand, yeah. this is something that's only been, as far as we've been told, going yes. for the last, since 2007. Yeah. Which, you know, is the fact that Britain is, like America, is now at war um, in a way that it sort of hasn't, wasn't sort of 20 years ago. Um, is there now a greater need for a, um, a nationally recognized performance of memory and mourning uh, in order to maintain public support for military action? That's an interesting question and that so yeah what you're talking about there is do we need to politicize memory in the present in order to be able to support things that are going on now? Yes. So it's entirely present this question. It's got nothing yes. to do necessarily with what happened before but exactly. it's to do with how do we capture hearts and minds in order to ensure mm. support for the continued military interactions. Um, And that's something I think that the in, in Britain, taking back the remembrance rituals, I think mm. that's something that the remembrance rituals are very good at doing. Yes. The two-minute silence and the poppies and so on, which we'll probably get to later. Mm. But they, because they are thoughtless mm. and do not require active engagement on the part of spectators, they are they can produce a kind of generic support for whoever can capitalize upon them. Mm. So, you know, if tomorrow we end up in a, a different war, then we could always use the general support that people get around November in Britain mm. for the death of soldiers in combat to push public opinion towards that yes. conflict. Mm. Um, Frankie Boyle had this... Um, uh, he thinks that the royal family being kept alive so that uh, if any bad news ever happens, we can just kill them, and then um, that can be turned into an act of, of, of collective mm. mourning so that it can then we can you know, yeah. support government measures to, to combat it. What the We're Here Because We're Here performance did, I think, is re-embody people that we otherwise wouldn't see. So you talk about, you know, the soldiers the, the, the soldiers die and that destroys the myth of the invincible American warrior and then therefore you know, they have to be kind of dealt with quietly by the back door so that we don't see this kind of stuff. When we talk about the death of soldiers in combat, we... Uh, in Britain at least, um, they will often be a big obituary and there'll be some, particularly if it's a significant, like the 100th death in Afghanistan, I think I seem to remember, that it was a Scot, I believe, 
was on the front page of all of the tabloids and all that and so on. And there was this uh, hagiography that is written of them. But if you then embody these people as real-life, living, breathing creatures, entities, and put them into a city centre, then it becomes a very different thing. Yeah. Then you start seeing a fragile, frail, weak, normal human body in front of you, and that rep who represents a person that's died in conflict. Yeah. And you can't you can't see the saint, you can't see yeah. the, the narrative, you can't yeah. see the hero. What you see is the person. Yeah. Um, and if that person is mute. I think that that also is quite significant because the dead, it, it, it to me at least, indicates this thing about the dead cannot speak for themselves. You know, nothing is more yeah. acquiescent than a corpse because it can't even acquiesce. It doesn't have any agency at all. Yeah. Death is this thing that we write that, that, that is written on by the living, and so that. The more I think about it, actually, the more I think I, I really quite like this performance yeah. because it undermines the ability for the living to write on the dead by presenting the living with the dead or an image yeah. of the dead yeah. in the world of the living and saying we're here because we're here. Yeah. It's interesting the the National Theatre in London did a production of Iphigenia at Aulis about 12 years ago um, and I happened to see it um, and it the it was a story about the First World War but of course this is a, a classical play about women um, and the story if, if you're not familiar with it is um, Agamemnon sacrificing his daughter Iphigenia um, at the start of a war um, in order to provide safe passage for his troops. And she's late teens, early 20s. She's kind of imagined as being 18, 19 years old. And the play was set at the start of the First World War in a British war room. And the chorus yeah. was um, made up of young women who, would, when they sang, they would dance without partners. Um, and there was this whole kind of, um, it was really a, a visual motif more than anything else of British women without men because they had been deprived of men by the very few men who are, who speak in the, in the play and of course who move most of the action. And it was about the women who were left behind, which, you know, historically weren't particularly important until fairly recently, you know, talking about narratives of, might be me. Um, and there's, I, I see this a lot now as well with um, Jonathan Jones, is the, the art critic and who writes for The Guardian, his critique of um, the poppy installation at the Tower of London last year. Mm -hmm. um, the idea that there are all of these people who don't have voices and who are not being commemorated. They're invisible consciousnesses, really, and bodies, but often it's experiences and, and personhoods that are being undermined by traditions of commemoration. Um, and for Jonathan Jones, of course, it was, with the poppies, it was all of the German and French and Belgian lives that were lost in the wars that are not being counted, that are not yeah, being represented yeah, by a poppy. Yeah, yeah. Um, in this this production at the National Theatre, it was the women. Yeah. Um, it was it was the women who were left behind. Um, and that's, to me, the, the kind of straightforward liberal critique of commemorations. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, I feel like there's more, there's more to it. And I think you're, you're grasping at it more with, this question of embodiment and and 
kind of reinscribing life onto the bodies that have, you know. There's also a question of claiming through commemoration, I think. You bring up this notion of who gets commemorated and who, who doesn't get commemorated. Who says who gets to be commemorated and who says how they get to be commemorated and what happens to that commemoration once it's been done. So for us, us, Jesus Christ, sorry, for the British, I don't know whether to, I shall claim myself as a Brit at the moment, um, for as long as Britain still, you know, exists. Um, the, the, the commemoration, particularly the remembrance rituals, are very much a state-organised um, set of events and abiding by and complying by the conditions of the commemorations is implicitly a valorization of state agendas. Yeah. And this, I think, was demonstrated extremely well and very horribly. In the, You mentioned this earlier, in an open letter, um, sorry, you mentioned this before we started the podcast, an open letter written on the 1st of January 2014 to the Daily Mail called Why Does the Left Insist on Belittling True British Heroes, written by Michael Gove, then Education Secretary, in which he said that the First World War had been hijacked by left-wing historians who did not like Britain and were using the death of soldiers in combat to further their own agendas. And so what he did was say that if you don't accept the First World War as some kind of heroic, necessary sacrifice, you are against the country. Refused them because so because of the state because Britain controls the commemorations therefore being against Britain or being against the, the British state and what you know, whatever it's doing at the time is to be against the the sacrifice that people made and that we've actually seen that quite a lot recently in um, uh, in the Brexit stuff people talking about you know my grandparents didn't fight and die for me to be subject to Brussels and so on it's weird how that kind of narrative has, has come into this the strange isolationist xenophobia that surrounded the Leave campaign. Um, so I think absolutely, yeah, this, this notion of, of re-embodying is fundamentally important when we talk about commemorations, but as is that thing of looking at who is running the commemorations and why are they running it. And it just to play devil's advocate for a second, is there a, is there a sense in which the nation-state is so adept at appropriation that whatever form of commemoration you think of, will always be taken up and made safe. So if we think of, we are here, you know, you said the BBC screened it, it you know, it became part of mm. a different, less triumphalist narrative, yes, but still a narrative of nationhood. That's a good question. I think, for me, the, the answer to that would come in the sense of ambiguity and not, and deliberately not setting an agenda of, of obscurantism or of... Um, of something, hmm. I came to all this because of a, another uh, commemorative production that happened in 2014 in York, which was a big open-air mm. promenade performance that was uh, Slung Low Pilot Theatre, York Theatre Royal Companies all came together, got 200 volunteers, uh, the audience were given headphones and we walked around the city at night and there were people performing little vignettes around us and it was about the men that had gone off to fight, the women that had stayed behind and worked in the... Um, Chocolate factory, yeah. Roundtree's chocolate factory. Um, and at one point, there was only really one point that in, engaged with the trenches, and that, that there was a, we were walking down the, the main high street in York, and then a, a, there's a lorry, the side falls away, and behind the lorry there's this replica trench strewn with dead bodies and dying bodies. And a nurse, and the nurse turns to us after a second and says, ladies and gentlemen, you don't belong here. 
and we were ushered away. And there was so that for me that worked beautifully because that was um, a clear indication that us in the present did not, could not intersect with, interact with the events of the past. That we needed to try to interrogate, that we needed to you know acknowledge, but we could not own, yeah. and that therefore there is something unownable, which is a terrible word, it's all I can think of, unobtainable, un yeah. ungovernable, unconquerable, unconquerable about the past. Yeah. And I think that in order to be able to avoid the nation-state appropriating yeah. the memories of people who've died in uh, wars gone past and so on, um, kind of appropriate, there was a siren at that point, <laughs> uh, there needs to be a fundamental acknowledgement of the past's absolute separateness from the present, and a maintaining of that separateness from the present. And I think, and again, that's something I think that, that the um, we're here because we're here performance did. It presented you with mute bodies who, although they were in your line of vision, in that Derridean sense of the ghost is both here and is not here, they were not people with whom you could have a conversation. They were not people with whom you could have any kind of interaction. They were not people with whom you could you couldn't get anything from them apart from their names. That, I think, is a way of potentially trying to resist state appropriation. Except, of course, there are multiple memorials. I mean, the one I'm thinking of in this moment is the American National Vietnam War Memorial, which is names. Mm. You know, it's, it's just a list of names. Yeah. Um, and I, again, playing devil's advocate for a second, I, I don't know if ambiguity is enough to resist. I mean, in a sense... Part of the issue here is that the war itself is and was a state-run operation. Mm. So because the, the trauma and the conflict and the, and the big-scale mm. you know, military tactics mm. and the images of the trenches, all of these are because of the state. Yeah. So in, in a sense, the state is appropriating to a certain extent but it's also, it was the arbiter of the mm. situation in the first place. Yeah. Mm. So it doesn't yes. need to appropriate one hundred percent because it already owns <laughs> quite a ours. bit. Yeah. So when you when we talk about you know conduct and counter conduct, mm. the conduct is quite easy because mm. a lot of it is prescribed already and it exists mm. in the mm. context of you know European mm. international conflict already. Mm. The counterconduct is much more difficult, and I think mm. this is where what you're trying to highlight about how we remember, how we commemorate, mm. how we mm. create new knowledge or new kind of emotional responses mm. to the past. And it is a, f a focus on the counterconduct, I think, because it is a Sisyphean battle, really. Mm. We're you know, you're you're fighting not just the state's appropriation, but the entire situation was constructed and yeah. you know, mm. created by oh. not just one state, but multiple states mm. in the state no. system working. So yeah. it's And anticipated as well. I mean, in terms of the yeah. first of all, it was stopped at eleven o'clock on the eleventh of November so that they could have that hour and that day yeah. to for future commemoration. So they yeah. artificially prolonged the bloody yeah. war for days yeah. in which I don't know how many people died, but I know it was a lot of people died. One of them, in fact, was Wilfred Owen. 
um, yeah. simply so that they could have that date for future years. So anytime, and which makes me kind of sick every time that we do this on the eleventh of November and eleven o'clock, people go, "Oh, wasn't it you know sad that they gave their lives?" I'm like, yeah, if we just maybe stopped it a little bit bloody early, yeah. then we wouldn't have lost quite as many of them. Not, not to mention the fact you, you said this already that in that commemoration that there is a seamless line being drawn from the First World War through the Second World War to Falklands to Iraq to Afghanistan, yeah. yeah, and uh, there is no space in in that setup to commemorate a war with a conscript army and set it up as distinct from a yeah. war with the professional yeah. army which to my mind they're very different things right? yeah, for one I'm sure, yeah. yeah you might be right about ambiguity I'm sort of thinking like, mm. I think you, yeah you may have a point that it's not enough it, um, I, I just I, I'm trying to think of a narrative of the first world war that would be counter statist and I don't I don't know if I, I can think of one certainly if you think of Britain's relationship with the first world war which, as you said before we started, is very different from Britain's relationship to the Second World War. Mm. Uh, I think the the narrative about the First World War being a monumental mistake mm. and a waste of life is is sort of been taken up by Britain as a nation. Yeah, um, and it's in, in many ways it's kind of uh, historians mm. are almost all of an accord. In this respect, in different ways, um, the it was Alan Clark. Um, weirdly, because Michael Gove thinks it's a left-wing conspiracy. It was yes. Alan Clark that wrote the book um, Donkeys, yeah. um, which where he coined the phrase "lions led by donkeys." He originally claimed that it was a German general that said it, but later on revealed that in fact he'd made it up. Yeah. Um, and Niall Ferguson, uh, the, the, mm. the historian who's so right-wing that he moved to the States because he thought that, that Britain was too left-wing for him, although maybe he's maybe on his way back, back now, yes. um, <laughs> uh, has said that we didn't... The, 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 was the pity of war, I think he said, that mm. we that actually, if we'd just stayed out of the First World War, Europe would have looked pretty much the same way as it did now, um, with a, a kind of Germany... <laughs> the Germany um, presiding over the economy. Uh, again, um, she's probably changed his mind now, you know, given the disintegration of the European Union project. But um, it's generally, yeah, it's, it's something that isn't, is not disagreed yeah. with. I think the only person that Gove could get um, to back up his opinions was some historian from Sheffield who'd written a biography of Field Marshal Haig where he said that Haig was terribly misunderstood by history. But everybody else kind of agrees that this was a catastrophe. I mean, I guess the, the one thing which we... It's interesting that we haven't mentioned this at all is empire. And empire very rarely gets mentioned in the context of the First World War. Yeah. Uh, and only if it does, it's sort of only to the, to the extent of we had soldiers from the empire fighting. But the fact that the imperial project was bound up in mm. the First World War, quite, you know, on, very explicitly on, on both sides, um, that this was an imperial war. Um, which is uh, perhaps a slightly more complex version of the this was a way, mistake and a waste and uh, uh, that narrative. Yeah. No, I completely agree. I mean, the, I very rarely look at the First World War in terms of the macro-political narratives yeah. because I can't really get past the, yeah. and it's a class thing for me, the notion that people were plucked from their yeah. homes to die for a mm. cause that they didn't understand mm. that they didn't have to die for but mm. did it out of international there's a brilliant brilliant book called Across the Black Waters by Mulk Vajanand um, and it's a story about Indian soldiers fighting in the First World War and there's a passage towards the start of the book where they're on the ship as the ship is coming to France and someone says you know th it's Marcel's there 
because you know that's how it's spelled. They don't know that it's meant to be pronounced Marseille. And another soldier says Marseille is that the enemy is that where the enemy is, mm. um, and they've no idea why they're there. They have no idea who they're fighting. Um, they needed money, so they joined up, mm. um, and it's this incredible indictment about you know the the counter narrative to the earlier poem I mentioned earlier on about this coming together of Britain and India in, in common sacrifice. Mm. Mm. Which you know, if if we are right in saying that the nation has so much invested in particular narratives of war, and if we are also right in saying that the nation is supposed to be democratic, where different views are tolerated, then how do we open up spaces where we can have alternative narratives of these wars? Can we? Is there space in in public life that where we can have truly challenging? It's really interesting when um, that movie American Sniper came out last mm. year. There was an interesting op-ed in the British Guardian mm. about um, it was asking this question: Is this going to be the Iraq War movie that does well at the box office? Mm. Because there have been a number of critically acclaimed, mm. Oscar-winning mm. movies about the Iraq War that have made no money. Mm. Um, the Hurt Locker is the mm. most famous one because, of mm. course, that won Best Picture mm. and won Catherine Bigelow the, mm. the Best Director okay. Award. Um, and people really didn't like mm. paying money to mm. go see The Hurt Locker. The Messenger is my favorite mm. um, movie about the Iraq War with um, Woody Harrelson. And it did terribly, but critics mm. loved it, and academics loved it, and filmmakers loved it, because it's a, it's a really stunning film. Mm. And, of course, The Guardian is asking, is Clint Eastwood's American Sniper going to be the one? And, of course, it was. Mm. But it was the one because the story mm. fits the American mainstream, which is quite conservative, mm. cultural Mm. narrative about the Iraq war mm. the story of the lone exceptional American superhero um, and Chris Kyle's story is very complicated and, mm. and challenging and very tragic mm. um, but the movie itself is not complicated mm. um, and of course it, it, it did very very well mm. meanwhile the Hurt Locker and, and the Messenger have done very terribly. And when you talk about is there space mm, for mm. for counter-narratives to appear, mm. there is. Mm. But it mimics mm. the challenge of writing the narratives in the first place, yeah. in a sense. That there's... They sit unevenly mm. for, you know, a, either a community or, you know, a nation. Mm. I don't know. Mm. I think it's quite possibly an accident of history, but if that's the case, then I think quite a good accident of history that the the the, the text that became emblematic of the First World War in Britain, at least in terms of televisual recording, was Blackadder, yeah. because it doesn't. There aren't. I mean, the, the, there are a lot of films made about the Second World War, mostly about the Western Front. Very few. About, I mean, in terms of British yeah. output. We're not as interested in the Eastern Front, we didn't lose as many people in it. And also it was a bad guy versus bad guy story mm. as far as we were concerned, so therefore, you know, it's not yeah. sexy. Yeah. But the First World War doesn't doesn't receive didn't receive as much cultural attention and then Blackadder came along and something about it just kinda clicked. Mm. 
Mm. And that kind of thing about... Um, yeah, oh, I, I actually, my, my A-levels, I remember being in the, the my exam and I turned over the paper and one of the texts that I got was the final bit from Blackadder and you could hear everybody in the room sniggering as he said, is it a plan as cunning as a fox has been appointed a professor of cunning at Oxford University, yeah. Baldrick? Yeah. And then he says, uh, you know, well, I'm sure it can't have been as as mad as the plans that they've got for us because and um, or as mad as my plan for appearing mad because who would notice another madman around yeah. here and all of that and that final shot of them going over the trenches kind of coalesce into this text which I think is probably really what pissed Gove off the most mm. because it was so I don't know powerful potent mm. poignant mm. that we haven't been able to overwrite it since mm. thank mm. god mm. Um, I'm sure that some, at some point somebody will make a film or a TV programme or maybe they'll just forget Blackadder and that which will overtake Blackadder and will then become the, the, the text by which we remember the First World War, but for the moment we've still got that. But yeah, that's, I mean, what, what, was, the, what was Zero Dark Thirty's critical response like? Um, it was mixed. I think generally most people really liked it. Um, the big kind of criticism was that it was not historically accurate enough for events that happened so recently. Um, there was a feeling that the particularly the way that the intelligence was gathered and the trajectory of the, the analysts and the, the spies that were involved, um, they weren't portrayed mm. accurately and there was a sort of feeling that it didn't really show the way that the CIA gathers intelligence in an accurate way. So that was kind of an academic criticism. Mm. Um, there was also the criticism um, from the... the, the right wing and from the mainstream which is quite conservative um, that the film um, criticized torture and from the left that the film condoned torture and no one could agree and of course all that happened was it was a narrative point she wasn't really Catherine Bigel wasn't really making a statement about torture in any real way. It was sort of shown to be part of the Bush administration's strategy and not the Obama administration's strategy. And various characters yeah, yeah. had differing opinions on yeah. that change in administration. I mean, any sort of film about the about politics that isn't about the president yeah. is always always deals with changes in administration. Yeah. Um, and so that, in a sense, Zero Dark Thirty was... was quite a complicated film um, that I don't think people really knew what to do with. That's why I quite like In it, a yeah. sense. People didn't really know how to deal with it. Yeah. Um, and I think part of that is Catherine Bigelow doesn't really make overt political statements in her films because partly because she says she's not really interested in that. She likes making action films. <laughs> and she likes filming yeah. movies about the Middle East and about Central Asia. You know, she, yeah. she really likes the kind of these big yeah. landscape yeah. action sequences. Yeah. And The Hurt Locker, she really wanted to make a movie about explosions and the tensions of being around bombs. So, in a sense, she's just making a... She's making action films. And I think we... You know, as as you've talked about, um, the audience is trying to engage in some other way, mm. trying to kind of put meaning 
onto our films. Um, the Academy likes it enough. Um, they reward her with nominations and. Mm. Um, but you know, is that yeah. enough? Do, you know, yeah. is, I mean, it's 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 an interesting sort of theoretical exercise to think about how our present will be commemorated in the future. Oh yeah, what, I ask what, students to do this all the time. How are we going to remember yeah. it in fifty years time, hundred years time? Which texts will be the things that will? There is a. It's a. There's a. I remember years ago that I, I wrote a, a book chapter on this. There was a brilliant uh, art installation by. Uh, a visual artist called Alicia Famis, and she did this thing called Project Guantanamo. And the premise was, you know, one day Guantanamo will close, and then it will probably be made into a museum. So what is that museum going to look like? So she mocked up displays of orange suits and made up souvenirs and fridge magnets and... Um, okay. And um, it, was, it was a really interesting but completely non-corporeal Thing. Mm. There wasn't the human body just wasn't there. Uh, in the mm. centre, what she did was she had these um, saw half sawn off motorcycle helmets arranged in a row, uh, and there was a voice that was reading the names of the prisoners. And again, you, you you have this you know recurring trope of of instead of representing the body, you represent the the person through their name. Mm. Um, which I, I'm sure is a gesture towards individualization. But actually, I'm not sure if it works. It's better than... There was a project called This Is Camp X-Ray at... Um, I think it was in Manchester, mm. where there was a performance artist mocked up... I think it was... It, it was Camp X-Ray part of... Was, uh, was this part of Guantanamo? Was this part of one of the prisons they set up in Iraq? I can't remember. It was something to do with American GIs detaining terror suspects and torturing them. Is it Abu Ghraib or...? Possibly. Yeah. Um, they... The artists lived in this installation, uh, undergoing sensory deprivation and starvation and so on, as a spectacle for members of the public to come and witness. And I think it was kind of well-intentioned, maybe, yeah. but really exploitative, and I didn't, wasn't yeah. very comfortable with it. Um, what the, what was another kind of, I suppose, accident of history is that the, the play that has made the most money, yeah. that is the most important in terms of National Theatre of Scotland, yeah. is Blackwatch which is a play that is about the Iraq war, um, and has toured in 2005, I think John Tiffany directed the original production, Gregory Burke's script, and it's been going pretty much ever since then, it's toured all over the world, and it's something that people have really got into. Um, now, theatre academics will often try and make special dispensation claims about the way in which theatre can encourage audiences to participate or to interact with what's presented to them, as opposed to film, which is something that is pre-recorded, and therefore it doesn't matter... What, how you respond to it or what you think about it it's just there whereas theatre needs audiences in order to be able to function maybe that's part of the case it's something that is a play it's, I'm, not, I'm not really sure what I think about it it's in many ways quite badly written beautifully directed at least in the original production um, but it is a play that does try to undermine the uh, pomp and heroism that is presented of the Scottish Blackwatch Regiment. It starts with this kind of big lights and sound and spectacle and then a little guy comes in through a door and suddenly you're in a pub and he's talking to you and he's kind of a bit nervous and you realise that you're not going to get the, the official narrative, you're going to get something else. Mm. People have responded really well to that. Um, so I suppose in some ways that that's the, the text that's emblematic of the Iraq War, at least for theatre audiences in Scotland and elsewhere around the world who have seen it. Finally, just to play devil's advocate, would we say that 300 was a film that was about the Iraq war and did quite well financially? 
Um, possibly. I mean, I don't. I saw three hundred and was asleep for half of it. Oh, always dreadful. <laughs> it's yeah. I mean, it's it has done very well and spawned. Mm. Zack Snyder. Many... He was spawned as a consequence of the film. <laughs> oh God, yeah. And he and you know it's it's inspired sequels and mm. um, video games and things. Um, I mean, yeah, possibly. Is it successful because it takes the Iraq War out of Iraq? Maybe. And the soldiers are not American soldiers in the same way? That yeah, there's yeah, a kind yeah. of, um, you know, led by a non-American piece of meat actor. He's Gerard Butler. Enormous. I mean, is... is I haven't seen 300, but is the, is this is there a similarity You'd in love the it. way you should watch it <laughs> in the way Lawrence Olivier did Henry V? Yeah, as of Second World War. Thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, he managed to get out of national service because of that. <laughs> they, they they just he used to go around and do that speech to yeah. the troops as a way of chipping them up. And of course, they took out the naked infants pitted on spikes bit from the play when they <laughs> well, because that would be a mm, little bit against the narrative. Yeah, maybe, um, maybe that this is kind of where. Um, Allegorical culture is fine, but anything that directly represents whatever it is that you're talking about is, is somehow problematic. It was it was part of a there was a wonderfully silly academic argument about three hundred, which Zizek waded into. Um, of course he would. And what he said that three hundred was actually uh, because if you think about it, it's a small group of very well trained, plucky, muscular fighters against a large decadent empire so actually it's the opposite from what people think it is it's in fact what you're focusing on is the Mujahideen against the United States and the United States here represented by Xerxes army of goat headed musicians um, because of course there is no tradition of representing America for a small plucky bland no. No, 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 soldiers no, no, at all no, no. that would be the first to well this is Zizek he's never that you know sanity getting in the way of his, <laughs> his, his ideas um yeah, I don't know. I, how do you think we'll be represented in, uh, in the, the future? I, well, I mean, right now. <laughs> how are we going to be represented in a year? How are we going to be in a year? Yeah, yeah I mean, well, June 23rd, Independence Day. <sighs> Britain's Independence Day. Without a shot being fired. <laughs> immortal words. Sorry, that was my fault. We've done so well. We managed to get pretty much all the way through the show without talking about sodding Brexit. Um, it's relevant, though. It's relevant. It's it's relevant because it's you know how does the nation? Because we, we're talking about how well, the nation represents itself. Yeah, basically. And actually, if, you, if, we, if we're going to talk about the fact that Nigel Farage quoted President Bill Pullman, mm. um, you've got the the ways who's of, made a reappearance in the new one, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah as it yes. turns out, Independence Day once again. Um, Americans fighting aliens. Yes. President Bill Pullman has coincidentally reappeared. Yeah, well, and that's something that I think is when we talk about the ways in which the nation and the military are represented mm. in popular culture, we often shouldn't really be looking at war films at all, but rather looking at sci-fi films, mm. action movies, mm. computer games, mm. places where, and often the military, um, as I understand it, has a kind of financial stake. Mm. Because in those kind of environments, it is much easier to produce a clear-cut narrative of good versus evil, of the invincible military, mm. even the, but the invincible, but almost always against all the odds. So in the Amer Independence Day, it is this completely invincible enemy that happens to be de de defeated by uh, the strange combination of Will Smith and Jeff Goldblum um, and it's a couple of cigars. It's interesting, one place war never makes an appearance. 
is ads for recruitment ads for the military. Mm. Then war is never shown. It's all about skills and peacetime activities and patrolling. And you, I, I can't remember a single mm. ad. Training exercises, I think. When yeah. I've ever seen Army be the best, yes. um, it's been training exercises. Although I have, I do remember seeing a Royal Navy one where there was it was almost like a Pablo Escobar thing of them foiling drug smugglers yes. At, at, yes. at sea or something. Yes, but. You very rarely see them at war. You, that, that's true, but well, yeah. Although, um, just taking this into another area of research of mine, um, ISIS, bless them, um, <laughs> figured out that there was a gap in the market there, and that what they should be doing was absolutely using um, war as a way of um, recruiting potential um, converts to their cause. And so they had that uh, Grand Theft Auto game that they cracked and then they remade and called Clashing of Swords. Which um, is available, as, or probably hopefully isn't now available, but was available for a long time. It's a multiplayer online extravaganza where you could play an um, IS fighter going around killing Kufar. And so that, that was their way of um, inducting people into the uh, conflict. They also had posters that they, they put up in the centre around an email saying, This is our Call of Duty. And it was a Call of Duty poster, wow. but it had been mocked up with a, an IS fighter. Which is, you know, we, we all hear so much about drone warfare being like computer games. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's our equivalent. Our equivalent. Supposedly that, there's that, that film was coming out recently, isn't it? I forgot what it's called. From the Sky? Eye in the Sky. Eye in the Sky. Um, been, I need to watch that film, but I haven't seen it yet. Have you seen it? I haven't seen it. Yeah. It's Alan Rickman's last role, I believe. Alan, um, yeah, and it's about drone warfare. And it, yeah. it supposedly actually does a fairly good job of talking about the complexities and of... Mm. How do you conduct a drone strike against a target where you know that there is at least one person that you suspect of being a terrorist, but there's also a bunch of people who are innocent? Mm. Sorry, yeah, taking it on a swerve. Um, I think we're done. Yeah. Um, Hope you enjoyed it. And we certainly enjoyed it, I think. Um, Thank you, Sam, for guesting. Thank you very much for inviting me on to your show. I feel very honoured. Um, if you liked it, let us know. If you didn't like it, let us know. Tweet at us. You can tweet um, uh, at our usual tweet ad- addresses and Sam, you're... At Sam Haddo on Twitter. Please just tweet me. And do do listen to Stage Brother. Um, <laughs> yeah, listen to the Derrida episode because I've realised that... I, like, if, you, if you check this when you look at um, statistics and so on... Yes. I get, you do an episode on terrorism, images, yes. fighting and so on. Then you do one on Derrida for Theatre for Children. No one listens to it. Yes. I wonder why. It's a very, very good episode. It's called <laughs> Wonder. Um, and, uh, yeah, if you like us, rate us, review us, um, it helps people find the podcast. And we will see you next week. Bye. 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 We hope you enjoyed this episode. I have been Hannah Fitzpatrick. And I have been Anindya Richardry. You can contact me on Twitter at Dr. H. Fitz. And me at Dr. Anindya R. Our music was provided by the Agrarians, and this has been State of the Theory. Thank you. Well,